Hello and welcome to Enroute. This is the podcast where we talk about the journeys of faith and modern life. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Uh, this episode is one of those episodes that I do every on occasion, which is not an interview, it's just kind of me riffing on stuff. And um, I wanted to do one more before the end of the year. Um, and so I wanted to kind of talk about a few things that were on my mind and um, then uh, let you all go. Um, before I go any further, um, I hope that you, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, um, I hope you consider doing that. Um, we are available on most podcast platforms. Um, also, I would really, really love if someone, uh, if people would leave um, a rating or review on whatever podcast app you're listening to. Um, those doing that it makes it a whole lot easier for other people who might be interested in this podcast to find it. So, if you can do that, that would be great. So. Um, there are a few things that I wanted to talk about. And the first one was kind of an explanation. Um, I recently had an interview with Andrew Donaldson, um, who does the Hertel podcast. And he kind of noted that I tend to have this obsession with Sears. And the fact is I do. Um, I've written a number of articles on Sears, um, and it's just something that rings in my mind um, that I feel like I need to get the word out because I don't feel that it's getting out. Um, what I'm talking about here, for some of you who may not be familiar with this, is really to talk about the downfall of Sears. Uh, Sears and Kmart, um, which is also part of the Sears group, have, um, over the last few years, been more and more closing stores. And a lot of people think that this is the last uh, Christmas that we will see these two retailers. Now, when everyone talks about Sears or Kmart, it's usually that they were behind the times and that this is the, re this is what happens when you don't modernize, when you don't get, a um, try to find new ways to appeal to customers and, and there is something to, to that. I think both of these retailers really went through periods, I think, in the 80s and 90s and um, the aughts where they really, I don't think, were trying as much to keep up with the competitors. Um, and I think that there were some bad moves that were made there. And I think that that has, you know, it, along with the whole talk about Amazon, um, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, Sears was the Amazon of its day and, and they are correct. And they will, and people will usually talk about the fact that, um, Amazon is probably eating Sears lunch because of course they are, uh, a much larger company. They are, um, just kind of basically eating up, um, brick and mortar retail, but that's, not the story. I think that that is the narrative that journalists like to focus on. Um, and when I talk about narratives, this is kind of a theory that I believe of mine that journalists aren't these days aren't as interested in 
seeking the facts as much as they are seeking the narrative. Um, they're trying to find stories that fit the narrative that they adhere to. And I don't think that Sears adhered to the narrative. Um, the narrative for Sears and Kmart is that they didn't keep up with the times. And this is the result. But that isn't really the story. Um, if you've listened to my interview with Warren Schulberg, you will know why it happened. And uh, I won't go into all of it. I will put some links in the show notes about um, the hedge fund manager, Eddie Lampert, who um, basically was the chairman of the board and bought the um, bought Kmart and then merged it with Sears. And um, the long and short of it, without going into a whole spiel about that, is that Lampert never updated the stores. The, the stores were ridiculously behind the times. And I can remember going into Kmart a few years ago. Um, sometimes I needed to get something, and that was the only place where I could get it. And by that point, Kmart was a pretty sad place. You know, if you had gone into a Walmart or a Target, you would have seen those kind of self-serve checkouts. And basically walking into Kmart was like it was 1979. Nothing had really changed. Things were really kind of backwards. And you can even see it in the workers. Workers just weren't enjoying themselves. And I could say the same if you went into a Sears store. Um, Sears had not updated in many years. Um, was looking a little tired and just not moving forward. And I think... Um, he did everything he could basically to take money out of the company. He really wasn't interested in trying to turn around Sears um, to make it better. But like I said, I'm not going to go into the whole st the story of Sears, but why am I so interested in this story? And it, really, to explain why I'm interested, you have to kind of understand who I am. Obviously, if you've been listening to this podcast, I'm someone that probably leans on the center right. Um, I believe in free markets. I believe that capitalism can do good in the world. But there's another part of me, if you've also been listening, that I grew up in Flint, Michigan. My parents uh, were uh, retired auto auto workers. Um, they were very much involved in the in the United Auto Workers Union. So. I come from this working class background, and even though I tend to lean more towards the right, um, I can't really get out, I, I can't distance myself from that background that cared about labor, about the worker. Um, I think I just do it in a very different way. It's one of the reasons that I really like groups like American Compass, which is a uh, center-right think tank that is truly focusing on trying to look at the economy away from the kind of, I would say, uh, Reagan-Thatcher view towards something kind of a little bit different. Um, and so I feel that there are just a lot of things that I think Sears is showing 
in many ways what's going wrong in American society, especially in the economy. Sears, I think if you went back when I was growing up in the 70s, it was kind of the, the it was basically the symbol of, of middle class life. And Sears and I think J.C. Penney to a lesser extent, these were, were places where the middle class went. That, that's where the, you know kids got their school clothes and parents got their lawnmowers and, and appliances. This is where they went. And, um, and so that was the epitome of what it meant to be a middle class person. I think as things have changed, especially as we've moved in to the 80s and then 90s and the early 21st century, the middle class in some ways started to wane. One of the things that is interesting, I recently read a story in The Nation magazine that actually came out about two years ago, and I will put it in the show notes. And it reflected on Sears from a worker standpoint. Not surprising because, of course, it's The Nation magazine. But it was fascinating to read about these people who, in some ways, were making a good living working for Sears. And what happened when Lampert took over and basically how they ended up screwed, um, how they lost health care, how, in some cases, they were they kind of got less in pensions. All of this stuff happened, and, and it really, I think, messed up a lot of people's lives. Um, the closing of, of the stores were not because of poor performance. Um, a lot of it did have to do with, again, trying to take money out of the company. And there is one case I think I remember reading where a woman volunteered to work at the Sears store until the closing day, and um, she took the followed the instructions that the company told her to do to fill out these forms, so that she would get her severance, and um, also some other benefits. And it ended up she didn't get that, and went through a lot of of economic hardship because of that. And I think that there's something disturbing about that. And I think that also what's disturbing, at least, and this is from a free market standpoint, is that Lampert, in some ways, and I think this has to do a lot with how hedge funds and private equity firms can go wrong, is that they end up, instead of trying to make companies profitable, um, go to you know, get them back on track, it becomes just about getting money. Um, there are these people, these business people who don't produce anything. They don't discover anything. All that they do is to act in a way like a parasite that basically saps the life out of their host. And I think that that's what's happened at Sears. Um, Sears had a good reputation, even though it was looking a little bit tired, you know, over the years, they were still, they were still a place that people trusted and Lampert took that away. 
along with people's job. And it also means that we have less choice. Um, we don't have that type of store. And I think maybe it's as I've become of a certain age um, where I don't go to the young people's store anymore. There are fewer and fewer places where someone in their middle age can buying good clothing. Sears was probably one of those places. It used to be one of those places. But it's not anymore because it's not there anymore. And Kmart could have been a competitor to Walmart and Target, but it was never really given any money to compete. And um, it doesn't really almost it doesn't exist anymore. And I think that all of this has to say a lot about American the American economy, American society, that seems very interested in profits, and it really doesn't matter how you get those profits. Um, you know, in Mexico, Sears still exists. Um, it was, it, it's either partially or, or, or has a good chunk of it that's controlled by um, a company run by Carlos Slim. Um, for those of you who don't know, Carlos Slim is probably one of the richest people in the world. He lives in Mexico. He is a Mexican citizen. And his company bought Sears. And if you go into a Sears store in um, Mexico, it's like night and day. They have the latest fashions. Everything is doing well. If you went to Australia, um, Kmart, is owned by a different company there, and they are a competitor against some of the other discount stores in Australia. So it seems like in other societies, there is still this interest in you know, creating a service and then trying to be the best so that you can make profit instead of what I think is happening too often in American society now where you have these people who, as I've said, in some ways almost act like parasites. They just kind of take money out of companies so that they can make money. But they don't do anything to make these companies profitable. It's, and it's bothersome. And Sears isn't the only problem, only, only place where this has happened. I think the other reason that Sears is... I'm so obsessed with it is because it is really a tale of how other um, other industries in American society are also facing these problems. And, and the problem that I'm talking about is um, having hedge funds and private equity firms run these companies, and basically what they're doing is um, either you know, taking cash out of the country, company or loading up debt that those companies then all of a sudden are liable for and they end up having to go out of business. That was the case with Toys R Us. Um, if you ever have the chance, please read McKay Coppins' article about um, the hedge fund that is buying up um, newspapers around the country. And it is basically... Basically, you know, 
again, taking money out and leaving the company or the paper with very little resources for them to cover the news. And so you have less of people being able to read about what's going on in their local communities. Um, and these are, it's again, run by a company, very hard to get in contact with. Um, the hedge fund manager seems to be someone that just doesn't like journalism and seems more than willing to destroy it. And like I said earlier, I do, I believe in free markets. I am, this is, I'm not some socialist. So you're not going to hear me talking about, you know, the state controlling something or what have you. But the way that money is being made here is not honorable. It isn't made after hard work, after trying to do what you can to get um, market share, to do what you can to please the customer. It's done by simply, in some ways, robbing people, taking money out of the company so that you can support yourself and your friends who are on the board and the workers and the customers, well, they can go pound sand. And this is happening more and more in our society. And I worry because I think that that also, a lot of these companies, people worked for these companies for a long time. And these were, were jobs that um, paid, again, good money. Um, these are probably not jobs necessarily for People with a college degree, but it, it it meant that someone without a college degree had a chance and a shot for a good middle class life. And I worry that these firms and what they're doing and how they're doing it is giving the middle class less and less opportunity to make a good life for themselves. And then you wonder where this is all heading, because I don't. I think that in the end, it's heading well, heading towards a good place. I think it leaves uh, the middle class, the working class, with less prospects for growth, for moving up. Um, that makes people more resentful. Um, I think that there is a reason why we see Trump and the kind of rise of Populism is because there's a lot of anger about how the current system works. It does not mean that we should listen to Trump. The man is a wannabe dictator and an idiot, but um, you can't appreciate why people in some ways are looking to this guy because in some ways they reject what they think is a system that no longer supports them. So, I mean, I think that's why I focus on Sears. I mean, I wish really that there were some way that people could band together and put a stop to this. I don't know for how long I wondered if someone was going to come and um, sweep in and say that what was going on here was wrong, that they were hurting the company and that they would come up and buy the company from Lambert. But no one ever did. No one ever on the board was willing to do that. And my only belief is that they thought that 
they got theirs and why should they worry? The other thing that I think has been disappointing is the media. I don't know how many people I, I would sometimes share some of the stories that I wrote with others. And it wasn't that I wanted to get credit for the stories, but I wanted them to look into this, to tell the story. And there are a few places, few journalists that have done that. Um, I'm thankful for someone like a Warren Schulberg who has been following this story for a long time. But I would share this with different groups, different podcasts, all of them hoping that they would, they would take up this story and, and really get it to a larger audience. And they never did. And I think, again, it's because it didn't hit a certain narrative. And I also think that our national media really focuses kind of on what they think the media, the, the, the audience wants. So I think sometimes maybe they're interested in the kind of the click, clickbait, um, click of our media. And so we want stories that are going to titillate and, um, this story, which is really kind of hard to understand, um, doesn't necessarily move people, which I think is sad because, um, our desire in some ways to be entertained comes at the cost of these people losing their jobs, neighbor uh, and communities that end up with large spaces that are empty and that they have to try to find some way of dealing with. I think it would be helpful if I would see more of that happening, but it doesn't. And I know that sometimes I feel like, you know, am I crazy because I focus on this so much. And I think, you know, the problem and what, what has been um, so maddening is that, you know, Sears probably at some point could have gone out, could go out of business, could have gone out of business. Like I said, it was losing, both of those companies were losing their stature. They didn't have that same um, shine that they once did. And, I could see them both going out of business. And had that happened, I would not have been bothered and I wouldn't have gone, been so obsessed because, you know, in that case, that was someone who didn't, a company who didn't try to do what they could to um, improve, to keep up with the times. And also that's kind of the normal way of how businesses happen. They they begin, they rise, they may even become titans in their industry, and then they decline and go out of business. But what happened with Sears is not natural. What happened with Sears in some ways looks like it's natural, but it's in some ways euthanasia. Um, it basically took a... a somewhat healthy company and then decided to kill it um, in order to make a few bucks. And that also bothers me because I can understand that if Sears went out because it didn't um, 
keep up with the time. It's another thing when people are deliberately not trying to support um, the business and then do things in a way that makes sure that the company um, goes out of business, that people lose money, that they basically are creditors that strip the company dry, right? strip the company bare. What I wish or I could see happen, you know, immediately I would love if someone could even buy whatever is left of Sears and Kmart, even just the intellectual property, to restart things. Uh, even cur currently, I think there are still some what they call franchise stores, which Lampert is now, I think, trying to, to mess with as well. And I just wish that there were people that could stop that, that could rise up and say no. Just because some guy has millions of dollars doesn't mean that he should be invincible. And that, I believe, even in a society of ours, the people have a say. And I think that they should have a say. I'm not saying that necessarily that this, the, the government has to have a say, but I am saying that we should stand up when we see things that we think are, are wrong. And I worry that too many people are so wrapped up into the, the narrative that they don't see what's going on. So I don't know if I'll write any more Sears articles. There are a few things that I might want to do. But the fact is, I've, I've done what I could. Um, I do want to, and I've hoped, at some point to interview the, the writer for um, of the Nation article. Um, unfortunately, I have not heard back, and this has kind of been a problem I've dealt with when it concerns um, business writers. They just don't seem like, I guess maybe just because I'm, you know, a little podcast, people just aren't that interested in taking up their time. So, um, you know, I've done what I can. And hopefully there will be people out there that will see this and do something. Um, if that happens, I will be grateful because that's what I've been trying to do these last few years since I've written these stories. Um, and I hope that, and I'm, I'm hoping that People will hear these stories for the first time. Um, one of the things that gave me hope was uh, the guy from high school um, read the story. He didn't really know what was going on at Sears. And um, I'm hoping that there are other people out there that will do that. It'll mean a lot. And hopefully it will move some things forward. And hopefully that there will be some sense of justice for the workers and for the surrounding communities and for our marketplace. So um, that's kind of where I'm at with Sears. Um, if, you're ever, if you're interested, if you have questions, if you have comments, especially if you know someone that was a former Sears or Kmart employee, um, I'd love to hear from you. And um, you can use the contact information, which is in the show notes. The other thing that I wanted to talk to um, 
as we uh, come finish the second half of this, is to talk a little bit about um, the year in review of, of being a, uh, a podcast. Um, December marks 10 months since I started this podcast. And um, it's been an interesting journey. Um, kind of learned it probably helps to actually have some things in plan, um, have some things planned out, but that's not usually how I do things. And um, it's a learning experience. But um, I've enjoyed having the interviews. I have um, really been excited to be a part of, to start something like this. Um, but it's also hard because you feel in some ways a failure. Um, this podcast, you know, I, I do do articles on, as I said, about the Sears thing, um, but I also focus on politics a lot. The main focus is on religion, religion and, and how it intersects with modern life. Um, and so I've really enjoyed being able to talk to people about this. But it's also been somewhat frustrating because it feels like I haven't been able to find a good audience yet um, without getting too much into um, the background. I think, you know, my download numbers are not that great. And maybe that's just early. It It's still... It sometimes takes a while for, for things to, to take off. But it's frustrating because you feel like you've done everything. Um, you know, I have everything, things plastered on um, Facebook and Twitter. Um, I have a website. I put all of my, most of my episodes on YouTube. And very few things actually move forward. I guess I'm trying to figure out why, you know, I think part of it is that, you know, I pick things that are interesting to me um, and things that are interesting to me may not be interested, may not be interesting to others. Um, and maybe that's part of the issue. I don't know. Uh, but I think I, I am interested in things like, um, kind of the theological significance of Black Lives Matter um, or kind of the history of J. Irwin Miller and his background as a disciples of Christ and what propelled him to kind of in this life of service that he lived fascinates me. Um, you know, I, I remember several years ago when borders still existed, they had a commercial about a guy he was trying to pass himself off as just being really regular. He listens to regular music, but every so often they would show the things that he was interested in. And none of them were, you know, the popular stuff. So like the music that he listened to, um, we then hear were from Tuvan um, throat singers, you know, not necessarily top 40 um, stuff. And I feel like that at times, that the stuff that I'm interested in might be too esoteric 
for others. I don't know. Um, but it's stuff that I've always been fascinated with. And I guess it's trying to find the audience that might be interested in some of this stuff that are maybe a little bit an odd duck that has a fascination for um, religion, for faith, um, from a more mainline perspective. But it's not, and maybe that's also the problem because it's not evangelical. Um, there are a lot of more progressive podcasts out there. Um, and they, you know, tend to have their own way of doing things. And that's not me. Um, it is kind of on the mainline progressive end of things, but you know, I'm, I'm much more orthodox, uh, much more also wanting to see, be critical of my own side. Um, that this is not a podcast where I'm just going to be a cheerleader for all things uh, mainline Protestant, but it's to be to, to be critical. Um, and I don't know. I don't know if that's that's the issue, um, but it is difficult. Um, and you know, I, I have to kind of understand that there are a lot of different podcasts that people can listen to. And not every one of them is going to be a smash hit. Um, but I would love to have more people listening to the podcast. Um, I do try to um, make sure friends know about it. Um, and, you know, you can only do so much. And I'm not going to stop doing this. I mean, I think there is something of value in in talking about this and um, in being willing to kind of ask some questions that don't normally get asked or talk to people that I don't think normally get talked to. I think that these that matters, and um, it's trying to be timely, uh, especially on on matters. But like I said, I don't think that it's always going to be the, the, the major issues that people are following, that everyone's following, and so everyone wants to look and talk about. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I am in coming up will be, um, you know, talking to someone about being a deacon. Uh, there will probably be one or two people that that's not anything that people it's always that fascinating. Um, and when I mean deacon, it's in, in some traditions, those are also ordained positions or consecrated, I should say. And so I'm always curious. And, and that's probably not something that is very famous, but it's something that I want to talk to. Um, you know, I did a, an episode a while back with a pastor of a congregation that looked like it was going to close and it has stayed open. And I think that those are stories that are, are fascinating, but I don't know if it's linked up to the main stories of the day. And so it's not always as interesting for others. I think, you know, running a podcast is a challenge. You know, the other thing that I think is also a challenge is that I don't have 
a producer or other things. I do everything for this podcast. So that includes putting the podcast together, you know, typing up and all the show notes and making sure that it gets distributed. All of that is something that I do. So, you know, that's probably one of the things it would be nice if there were especially someone that could help with distribution. I think sometimes having someone else look at this might be easier um, than just for me to try to figure figure everything out. But that's kind of where that is going. Um, In the next year, I really look forward to doing a little bit more and some other stuff, um, maybe focusing on some issues, especially facing my own denomination. Um, I'm also, because it's an election year, I want to see where religion and politics intersect. Um, So I think that that's kind of where I'm heading in 2022. Um, And, of course, (laughs) I will probably be doing some things that deal with the coronavirus, um, which seems to never, ever, 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 ever leave us. Um, these are kind of the things, you know, I, I think I do, I write and I do things and I'm not always, and, and I think sometimes this, this comes with being on the spectrum is that I don't always follow what has been the popular thing. So because I don't, I'm I'm kind of quirky, um, and our culture doesn't always follow quirky, and so in some ways I just have to get used to that. That that's probably where I'm at. Um, I think one of the things that has again I kind of get obsessed with the download numbers is I remember a while back I was um, asked to join and I did this website, which is called um, Audrey. And it's a website that uh, kind of helps new podcasters connect with other podcasters. And I happened to read an article, the website, um, about this, the website. And the guy who wrote it was incredibly dismissive of it. And he said, basically, well, this is a website for losers. Um, don't have very many people listening to them. And, um, you know, these are losers. And he, of course, had his bona fide way of having 10,000 people listen to him or whatever. And um, other than that, I thought it was complete bullshit. Um, You know, there are a lot of people that they try very hard and they do their work. And um, they're not losers. I think it takes a lot to put yourself out there, take some risk, um, especially to call up people, to make, um, set up interviews with people who don't know you from Adam and to do this. And would you like to have more people listening to you? Yes. But I don't really like when people basically say that 
I'm a loser because, of course, I don't have, you know, 1,500, 2,000 people downloading my articles or my episodes. I think, you know, you do what you can, and all you can do is make sure that people get the message and that they will uh, hopefully listen. And if they like something about the article or the episode that they read, they'll pass it along to someone else. And that person will pass it along to someone else, and so on and so on and so on. All you can do is try. And I think that that's the thing that I am thankful for I did this year in 2021 is that I tried to do this. There are a lot of people who could have thought about doing this and just didn't. And for whatever reason, I was willing to put myself out there and do it. And um, I'm thankful. Um, I'd like to have other people listening, more people listening. But maybe that just takes time. And maybe I also just have to remember why I'm doing this. And it's not necessarily for the downloads, even though I would like to see more. But it's because I think that there are issues that need to get out there. Um, when I was a kid, one of the reasons I was interested in journalism was because I wanted to tell stories that people didn't always hear. Um, being a person of color, there are stories that you know the wider society doesn't always know about. And I'm not saying that saying, you know, this is the evil United States and they don't share that. It's just the way things are. And I think it's important to find to find those stories and tell them. And because someone will listen to it. It may not be the way you expect, but someone will listen. And it could change someone's life. Uh, what else do I have here? Oh, I'm gonna be writing, um, I'm kind of writing it right now, um, about the website from forum for people who are not aware from forum was a, a news website that existed maybe I think from about 2009 to 2014 um, as the name suggests it was run by David from um, who if you are someone that follows politics he is a Canadian American writer uh, he was on a uh, a speechwriter for George W. Bush. And he had, the thing about From Forum, it came out just as Obama was taking office, and he really believed that um, conservatism, the GOP, had to move away from its um, low taxes, low government, or small government frame to something a little bit different. Um, that had a role for for some more government involvement than usual. Um, in some ways, he was focusing on on issues like inequality and um, being willing to break um, GOP orthodoxy before Trump stood and came on the scene. Now, Trump, of course, we know. I think that was a lot of that was a a stick that he could use to be popular. But here was someone that I think was 
getting at the at, at what was going on. And he basically employed a lot of writers, um, writers like myself. Um, and, you know, you didn't get necessarily paid for it. It was just you came on, it gave you an opening um, to work on this uh, website and, um, and to write. And I think a lot of, of writers out there um, got their start at from form and that includes a, a young man who went by a, a, a nom de guerre did not share his real name but he had a lot of questions about uh, conservatism and could it be more modern that turned out to be uh, J.D. Vance if you remember from the hillbillyology theme of course the sad thing now is that he decided to, to go full Trumpist so it, it sounds, it feels a sense of sadness and betrayal there. But it, it did get a lot of people out in the woodwork, out of the, the woodwork to ask questions. Where is um, conservatism headed? Um, Trump Forum did have a, one or two um, reporters on it, but the rest were all volunteers. And I think that there is still a need for something like that, because as much as I love both the Bulwark and um, the Dispatch, which are both uh, Trump skeptical um, conservative websites, there really needs to be a place that's willing in some ways to be iconoclastic, uh, that is on the center right, but is willing to, to kind of break some icons um, and question some of the assumptions that isn't just talking about how bad Trump is, and he is bad, but is also trying to offer some solutions. How do we address the stagnant incomes of the middle and working class? How do we deal with income inequality? It's not that, and how do we in some ways strengthen democracy, not just worrying about 2024, but even down farther down the road. These are um, important issues. And I think the, the great thing about From Forum is that it really drew from a wider audience. It wasn't just a few reporters or a few people um, who worked for them. It was a wider place. And um, I would love to see a From Forum of some type return. It doesn't have to be a be From Forum but someplace that allows for writers uh, from all walks of life to kind of ask that question or think about what kind of conservatism do we need in the 21st century? And how do we establish something that is kind of away from the traditional understanding of conservatism, especially when it comes to the economy, without it becoming the kind of racist um, sewer that Donald Trump and others have turned the Republican Party into. So uh, expect that article to be coming out in a few days. So this is probably one of the last um, episodes for 2021. There are, I think, two others that will be coming out of the shoot this week. And then next week... Um, there won't be any stories. We'll take the week off. Um, 
And then hopefully uh, we'll start back up sometime early in the new year with more stories. So I just want to say thank you for everyone who has listened, uh, people who um, have passed the stories on to others, and uh, people who have also said a kind word of, of, of encouragement to me. I think that that means a lot. Well, with that, um, I do want to say thank you. God bless you. I hope that you, um, if you are a Christian, that you have a Merry Christmas. Um, for those who are not, I want to say Happy Holidays. I hope to see all of you in the new year. Uh, stay healthy. Get vaccinated if you haven't. Get a booster if you haven't. And um, we'll see you next year. Take care, everyone. Godspeed.